You have reached the dumb Christian. I am your host, Jonathan, and today we're exploring Genesis chapters 20 and 21 of this ancient text called the Bible. We're going to encounter a story that I've, I'll be honest, I don't really know why it's in the Bible. The first time we meet a man named Abimelech, what happens when Abraham, Sarah, and God go on this journey together after God promises them their own son. It's, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit chaotic, but we're going to discover that Abraham is still trying to do things on his own merit, on his own strength, and he's not going to do a great job of it. And yet God is in the midst of it all. We might get a little bit colorful. The Bible's about to get very real, so buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. Uh, we mentioned last time we were in Genesis that um, we're gonna we're not going into Genesis chapter 19 as we go through the book of Genesis because our very first episode when we were trying to work out the kinks of what this podcast looks like, the very first one we did was Lot and his two daughters, and that's what Genesis 19 covers. So we skipped over it. If you haven't had a chance, go back. There's where you can check it out. But last time in Genesis, uh, God m- promised Abraham that in one year he was going to come back and he and his wife Sarah were going to have a baby boy of their own. Not one that they were able to have by having sex with Hagar, but Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, was going to give birth to a son uh, that, that, that would be theirs. And God has been promising this to Abraham for 25 years. Finally, the fulfillment of that promise is about to take place. And then something happens. He's been hanging out near Hebron, but um, I don't know if he is migrating to another place because of the seasons changing or if he moves because Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction and he's trying to just get away from all of that chaos. But for whatever reason, after God promises Sarah and Abraham that they're going to have their own kid, which they haven't had any so far, um, they, they pack up and they move into this new region that's ruled by a man named Abimelech. And he's king over several cities, a good chunk of the region in Canaan. And um, if you've read the Bible before, or if you read ahead, you're going to encounter that there is this, this name is going to keep popping up a few times. Abimelech, Abimelech. Say Abimelech. It kind of just bounces around in your mouth. It's pretty fun to say. Abimelech. And we might make the connection, say, hey, is this the same guy? Because we're going to discover that when we meet another man named Abimelech, who is reigning as king in the same region, we're like, is this the same guy? What's going on here? Abimelech is a Hebrew word, just a generic word for a pagan king. And it literally just means his father is king or he comes from a king. He is descended from a king. So he is king. It's a Hebrew word just for a generic title for a pagan king. And uh, that's how this king is identified, Abimelech. Abraham, Sarah move into this region. And again, Abraham is still terrified that um, this nation, these people are going to want to take his wife for themselves. And so he's afraid that they're going to kill him. And so again, they have this ruse where he says, Tell to his wife, Sarah, tell everyone you're my sister. And if you remember, he they did this already when they went to Egypt. It didn't work out really well for them. And, and they had some drama and some tension and they had got kicked out of the land of Egypt. 
Well, here again, at the beginning of chapter, well, really all of chapter 20, it's like a rehash of that story. And I'll be honest, I've read this chapter over and over dozens of times, and I'm really wrestling with why is it in here? What we do here at Dumb Christian is I'm not trying to teach you how you can use the Bible to, you know, I'm not trying to turn this into a sermon. Um, you know, look at the Bible as this is how it applies to your life. What we really want to try and do here is just understand what is going on in the Bible. And and to do that, we have to understand the, the headspace of the original author thousands of years ago. What were they trying to accomplish when they wrote this? What was happening? And, and what did it mean to them when they wrote it? And we have some resources, some Jewish traditions, Midrash, some sages and rabbis in these ancient writings, but there's not a whole lot about Genesis chapter 20, at least as far as I can see. If, if you found something, send me a link, leave a comment, let me know what's going on. But I've read this over and over and over, and, and I've read before and after, and I just don't understand why Genesis chapter 20 is in the Bible. I don't see how it connects with the rest of the story. Like, what purpose does it serve? But it's basically a re, uh, uh, like the whole story of their trip in Egypt all over again. They go in, they lie about their relationship. The king Abimelech takes Sarah to be one of his wives, one of his concubines, which, by the way, is really kind of crazy because if you thought it was a little insane that Pharaoh wanted to take Sarah as his wife back then, she's now 90, maybe 89, I think, somewhere between 89 and 90. And she is still so smoking hot as a 90-year-old woman that Abraham's terrified and Abimelech wants her. He says, oh yeah, I want that 90-year-old woman in my concubine, as my concubine. What is it when, what's it, you know, like a flock of seagulls? What's it called when you have a a flock of, of concubines? I don't know what it's called. And he says, yeah, I want her. Oh, harem. I think maybe that's what it's called. I want her in my harem. Yeah. And so he takes her because, as far as he knows, she's just Abraham's sister. But after he takes her into the house, again, his whole house, all of his servants, all of his workers, soldiers, officials, everyone in the house of Abimelech, King Abimelech, is either cursed with barrenness in their wombs. Women are are barren and men are sterile. Or uh, the men are once again uh, cursed with this weak peener. Uh, syndrome. And nobody can have kids. Nobody can get pregnant while Sarah is in Abimelech's harem. Abimelech has a dream where God appears to him and is rebuking him. He says, you've taken another man's wife. And, And there's this really interesting discourse that Abimelech has with God in his dream. He says, but God, acknowledging who he is, I didn't know I didn't know. I thought she was just his sister and I didn't, I haven't done anything sinful. I did everything with integrity, trying to honor their relationship as far as I understood it. And God says, you're right. I know, I know. And and I've protected you. And it's this really weird interaction that we see. And we've seen this a couple times already. And I think we'll see it several times after this. That God has relationship with and interacts with people outside of the main characters of the Bible. I, I think the Bible 
really is just focusing on paying attention to the characters and the people in the direct lineage, the direct descendants of uh, the ancestors, excuse me, of Jesus. The, the lineage, the genealogy, bringing about the Messiah. And it's not that God only interacts with these certain people groups and these people because we do see that he has interaction and relationship with people outside of the main characters of the Bible. And I think that's an interesting note. Anyway, so Abimelech wakes up from the stream and he's terrified and he tells all of his officials and all of his house and he's like, shit, we got to fix this now. And they get terrified and they're like running around like chickens with their heads cut off, terrified. Ah, what are we going to do? And and he comes up to Abraham and he's like, what the WTF, mate? Uh, you told me she was your sister. And he's like, yeah, sorry. I didn't know that you respected God. I didn't know that you would fear God. I was afraid that you'd kill me. You know, we've, we've heard this same old Pat, the same old hat story again. And um, so everywhere we go, she claims to be my sister. And Abimelech's like, that's kind of bullshit, but okay. He gives him a bunch of gifts, just like when he was in Egypt. But the difference here is that Pharaoh kicked them out of Egypt. Abimelech doesn't. He says, go ahead. You can stay here any of my land is is up for grabs. You can take it. However, the deception causes some real tension between Abraham's family, his tribe, and King Abimelech. And we're going to see at the end of chapter 21 that there's tension when they tried to dig some water wells and they tried to prosper their families and groups. There's conflict because... Abraham lied because they deceived the king. Anyway, so put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. But ultimately, I don't really understand why that story is in there. He's done it before. He's doing it again. Is it just showing us that he has this bad habit? I don't know. It's not very clear. To me, at least. But I do find it interesting that this encounter that Abraham and Sarah have with King Abimelech nests right in the middle of between when God promised, I'm going to come back in a year, you're going to have your own son, and the birth of their son, Isaac. This little like misdirection occurs right in the middle of God fulfilling that promise. And uh, so Abraham and Sarah, they settle down in the land. They're finally back together. <clears throat> they have, Sarah gets pregnant. And in all of this, we, we look throughout Jewish history, Jewish tradition, even into Christian tradition and the New Testament. Abraham is always elevated, glorified as like the patriarch, the father of Judaism, the, the founder of, of people who follow Yahweh God. And it, he's consistently over and over, repeatedly considered righteous he is righteous. God says he's righteous because of his faith, not because he has perfect behavior, not because he always lives exactly the way he's supposed to, not because he doesn't make any mistakes, but because he trusts God's going to fulfill his promises. And that's a very interesting twist, especially as we look here 
Abraham does have this proclivity. He has this tendency to lie. Maybe it's a tendency of fear. Maybe it is a tendency of, of mistrust or he just has a habit of lying. I don't know what's going on here except to say that he has a habit of choosing uh, for himself a good that is different than the good that God would choose for him. And here at Dumb Christian, that's our definition of sin, is whenever we choose a good for ourselves that is different than the good that God would choose for us. And we see right here at the beginning of chapter 21, after this big catastrophe happens with King Abimelech, God fulfills his promise of giving Abraham and Sarah their very own son, despite the fact that they continually and in the exact same ways, choose a good for themselves that is different than the one that God would have for them. They're trying to achieve their greatest good on their own, and it keeps blowing up in their face. But that isn't what determines whether or not God is going to keep his promises for them. God is faithful. We see in this story that God is faithful to honor what he said he's going to do. He keeps his promises because it says a year later, sure enough, she has she gets pregnant, gives birth, and they have their very own son together. Abraham and Sarah have a baby boy who they name Isaac, Yishak, I, I think is how you say it, Yishak, something like that. But we just say Isaac. And it comes from the root word in Hebrew to laugh. And it was very common for parents to name their children after maybe something going on surrounding the child's conception or the child's birth or a season of life that mom and dad are walking through some things they're feeling at the conception of the of the child or or the child's birth we see this a lot um much later between um Jacob and Rachel <clears throat> And Leah, there's a lot of conflict in that family, and they're naming their kids after how they feel about their husband and their and God and, and their family dynamic. We know that Joshua is means God is our salvation, and that's actually Jesus' original Hebrew name, right? God is our salvation. Mary means bitterness. Um, you know, so the, there's this feeling, there's this emotion or meaning behind the names that are chosen. They don't just choose a name because it sounds cool or it's what's trending on Twitter. They have meaning and substance to their names and why they name their kid these things. Isaac comes from the root word to laugh. And if we remember that moment when God said, next year, you're going to have your own baby boy. What did Sarah do? She laughed. But it's not just this laughter like, oh, yeah, right. But it's this laughter of joy, this laughter of God fulfilling his promises, this, wow, he is good and faithful, even when we continually screw up in the same ways over and over and over and over and over. Hmm. Yeah, anybody find themselves in those kind of patterns where they're like wondering if God is going to keep his promises despite the fact that we keep repeating those same screw-ups over and over and over. And the Midrash doesn't really go into detail. The, the ancient sages and rabbis also don't really talk much about Abimelech. But they do mention that 
when Isaac was born, there's a, like these rumors going around. There's some speculation like, oh, Abraham and Sarah have never been able to get pregnant before. So Sarah must be pregnant by King Abimelech. She must have conceived while she was in his harem. So the Midrash does say that when Isaac was born, God made him to look identical to Abraham. So there is no mistaking uh, whose kid he is. And I just love this picture. Like Isaac comes out as a tiny, you know, helpless little baby, except for his face is like well-defined chiseled with this old Testament beard, gray hair. And he just looks exactly like Abraham. Uh, that'd be something else, huh? <clears throat> and the Bible doesn't tell us that God did in fact return, but God promised when I'm going to come back in one year and you'll have your own son. And the Bible doesn't tell us about God returning, but I do imagine like he probably threw one hell of a baby shower. Like he showed up like, Hey, I told you guys you were going to have your own son. Uh huh. Raise the roof. Here's a bunch of diapers and some fancy strollers and a car seat and some, some formula, everything you need to be able to take care of this kid. Here's some monitors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, imagine getting a baby shower thrown by God. That's, I think, probably what happened. And then when Isaac was eight days old, just according to the promise that God had made, remember, we go back a little bit, God instituted the covenant of circumcision. When a, when a male is eight days old, he gets the foreskin of his penis cut off. That's circumcision. And it's a sign, a symbol of we are a part of this covenant that God made with us to protect us and to provide us with a lineage leading to the Messiah who's going to save the whole world. Isaac gets circumcised when he's eight days old. Well, he grows up a little bit. He no longer needs the breast milk, uh, Sarah's breast milk. He can walk, talk. He's starting to eat solid food on his own. And there's a little bit of sibling, sibling rivalry occurring between Isaac and Ishmael. And there happens to be this one occasion where Ishmael is kind of like bullying, picking on his little brother, Isaac. And it says, the Bible says, Sarah looks over and sees Ishmael laughing. Midrash tells us that what Isaac's doing is he's making fun of Isaac. He's basically saying, um, I'm more righteous than you. God likes me more than you. Because when God told our dad to, to circumcise all the males, I was 12. I was a grown person. I had to choose to do that. I let dad circumcise me. And boy, do I remember the pain that I felt when he did that. You were only eight days old when you got circumcised. You don't even remember. You didn't have to suffer for the covenant that God made with our dad. I'm better than you. Ha ha. And when Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac, something erupts inside of her because when she looks at Isaac, he's meant to be a, a milestone, a reminder of the joy, the laughter that she gets from experiencing God's good, God's good gifts. And Ishmael is, is, is kind of perverting that idea. He's laughing not out of joy for the Lord, but out of arrogance and pride. And, and she just won't stand for that. And if you remember a few, several chapters ago, she kicked out Hagar 
and Ishmael from their family, from their clan, their tribe. And then God told Hagar to return, and then they had to re, you know, restore their relationships and do some reconciliation. But this time, Sarah kicks Hagar and Ishmael out of the family tribe permanently for good. And once again, we see Hagar in the desert with just her and her son in a very dire, hopeless situation. It gets to the point where they run out of water and she puts Ishmael under like a dying bush to try and shade him from the scorching sun, maybe protect him a little bit from the blowing sand. And I mean, it's the dramatic scene in the movie, right? Where they're climbing the sand dunes and they just collapse out of exhaustion. And she, she kind of goes, tries to go a little bit further. And she's like, I can't watch my son die. And she's in this place where it's utterly hopeless. She doesn't have any way to provide for her son, to protect her son. Even though in Genesis chapter 16, when we've seen this picture before, God takes care of them. God sees them and he makes a promise to Hagar. He says, I'm going to raise up your son to be a mighty nation. And sometimes it's really easy, especially for me. I, I read the Bible and I'm like, uh, you just had this really cool encounter with God. He made this incredible promise. Why can't you see he's still going to take care of you? Because she's expecting, she's ready to die. She puts Ishmael over there. She can't watch him die. So she's like, I'm going to go die over here. Why can't, why are you so feeling so hopeless? But then I realized that, you know, I might have a minor inconvenience in my first world life. And oh, how easy it is for me to be like, oh, God has forsaken me. I'm totally abandoned. And so here she is, ready to die, wondering where this God of promises is, this God who sees her. Where are you? And at the last second, angel of God shows up. We see you. We haven't forgotten you. We haven't abandoned you. We haven't forsaken you. We're still going to fulfill this promise. Go get your son and look over there. And she looks up and she sees this oasis. It's not a mirage, but it is the classic like palm trees with a big pond or lake or something in the middle of the desert, right? And I don't know why God seems to be in the habit of waiting until the last second. I don't really have an answer for that right now. Maybe we're going to discover something later in the Bible that might help us understand why he does that. I think I have some, maybe some ideas, but they're all kind of like my own speculation. I don't really have anything in scripture that says, this is why God does it this way. But it is interesting that She's at her wit's end, at the end of her rope, and she's ready to just die, utterly hopeless. And that's the moment when God steps in and says, don't worry, I haven't forsaken you. I haven't left you for your own to die. I'm still going to fulfill my promises. And later, we're probably going to skip over it when we get to it, but later, the last bit that we do hear about Ishmael is we are given a genealogy. And from Ishmael's lineage, we do see a large number of people groups who later will be Muslim nations, the Muslim faith, who uh, uh, who do 
ascribe their lineage to this descendant, this child of Abraham. But as far as scripture goes in, in the Jewish Bible or the Christian Bible, this is the last that we see of Hagar and Ishmael, but it's not the last that God sees of them, right? He's the God who sees them. He's the God who took care of them, leads them into these oasis, oasis sees, oasis, and, and provides keeps his promises to Abraham, to Sarah, to Hagar, to Ishmael. And yet there's this really weird kind of like chaotic dynamic that's occurring because God keeps his promises to Abraham and Sarah. He keeps his promise to Hagar about Ishmael. But because Abraham and Sarah, these godly righteous people, who are just people, which by the way, I think maybe that's one of the things I appreciate the most about the Bible is that it doesn't pretend like these pillars of the faith are these perfect, righteous, you know, they never did anything wrong. They, the Bible openly and readily addresses and acknowledges that to err is human, right? We're not perfect. We are broken. And yet God still works within our brokenness, their brokenness to do something incredible. He also keeps his promises despite the repeated brokenness of these people. And although God keeps his promises and he is good, gives good gifts to these people who keep screwing shit up. They still have to deal with the ramifications. Like, like we said, at the end of chapter 21 here, we see there is still devastating consequences to, to Abraham and Sarah's family because they tried to take God's promise into their own hands and Abraham had sex with Hagar. This causes horrible tension and conflict in their family between Abraham and Sarah, between Abraham and Hagar and his own son, Ishmael. Like he has to send his kid away because of how tense the situation is. And that, I mean, can you, can you imagine? I, I can't, I can't imagine that Abraham ever fully recovered from that. Like that's my first kid. And on, on top of that, remember at the very end of chapter 21, we, there's still tension between Abraham and Abimelech and they're fighting over water wells and who gets what part of land and they're trying to make treaties and covenants. And it's just a big mess because they're continually trying to take matters into their own hands and do what they think is best. And it's different to what God says is best. And it causes conflict in relationships and in their own hearts and in, in the community that they're living in all the while, God is still fulfilling his promises and blessing them. He doesn't magically fix the situation in their relationships and say, Oh, well you screwed up, but that's okay. I'll fix it. He still is faithful. He still keeps his promises, but there are still consequences to sin to the behaviors where they're neglecting and, and what God has for them and trying to make things work on their own ideas of what's best. And that is a pattern that we're going to see throughout the Bible. You read the Bible, go read it for yourself. It, 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 the Bible says it better than I can say it. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. But that is the consistent pattern we see throughout the Bible that God is consistently trying to like fulfill his promises, bless his people, 
despite the fact that they're, you know, messing everything up. And they, and, 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 and while he's blessing them, they still have to walk through the ramifications of their own actions. The Bible just records what happened the way it happened without pulling any punches. That's just the way it is. And that is Genesis chapters 20 and 21. I have been your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian. I love you guys. I'll catch you later. Although I don't fully understand what was happening with the encounter between Abimelech, Sarah, and Abraham, or why it's in the Bible, we do see that there is this steadfast behavior uh, and faithfulness between God and his people and uh, the way that he interacts with, I think, everybody. Uh, Be sure to check us out on YouTube, Dumb Christian Podcast. There is some exclusive content. We're working on putting out some more. Hit subscribe, like, ring that bell to make sure you see and get notified when new stuff is dropping. I love you guys. I'll catch you later.